Thanks, Ben. So I was getting ready this morning. My, uh, my wife, Emma, remarked that I look like a golfer today. you agree with that? Yeah. Well, uh, we're continuing our series uh, in the book of 1 Peter uh, in the Bible, uh, the latter part, everything from Jesus onwards. That's the New Testament, if you're, you're new to the Bible. And I'm going to jump straight in there, actually. So if you've got a Bible with you, then do turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, reading from verse 12. And uh, if you've not got a Bible or a phone with you, then the words will be on the screen. So in my Bible, it's entitled, Suffering as a Christian. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's been a great few weeks for us as a disciple-making community, hasn't it? We had to, together Sunday, uh, gathering all our congregations together and our, our friends in Birmingham that we, uh, we planted the church there a couple of years ago and uh, celebrating all God's doing amongst us. And of course, that wonderful offering, the, the 107,000 that was raised there with all a gift aid and, and, and uh, pledges all, all together. And thank you so much to those of you that, that gave into that. It truly is a remarkable sign of the grace of God upon us. And uh, we've had Scriven with us, haven't we? The, the pastor from our uh, partner church out in Blantyre, Malawi. And uh, it, he spoke here a couple of weeks. We just enjoyed him being amongst us. Great strengthening of the relationship there. Um, we've, we've seen growth uh, continue to uh, happen across lots of our meetings and, and ministries. The, the social enterprise that we, uh, we set up to give people a second chance in employment called Radiant Cleaners. That's on to 15 employees now, is it? 18, and if we ask Matt by the end of this talk, it'd probably be even more, so 18 by now. And so, you know, we thank God for these things. We celebrate these things together. And it's important to recognize, given all of that, as our passage does, that actually amidst all the joy and the celebrations, there are those amongst us who are just finding things really tough right now. And we don't want anyone left behind on the battlefield. And even the the last few weeks, just conversations that I've had with people involving um, uh, difficulties, communicating with family about people coming to faith, uh, family fallouts, people who are suffering severe sickness, people who've lost friends because they've stood for Jesus, people who've been hurt by Christians or by church or just feel a bit beaten up by, by life itself and all sorts of other things. 
So I want this morning to give a, a, a bit of a team talk, if you like. And if you're visiting us this morning, then come and be part of our team this morning, just to recognize that whether you are in the place of really suffering right now, really finding things tough right now, or if not, then one day knowing that in, invariably you will be, that God has not forgotten you. And that there is purpose in your suffering. And that when you know that, there is joy and blessing to be found in it because God is with you in your suffering. Maybe you can identify with, with some of Peter's readers. They were finding things difficult from society, so friends, family, those they worked with because of their faith, experiencing some kind of opposition because of who they were, what they believed, and the decisions they made. Some of them just finding life tough. They felt like they're in a spiritual battle. Feel like they've been beaten up by the enemy. Some of them had questions. Some of them were tempted to give up because of their circumstances. I wonder if you can identify with that this morning. Well, Peter writes to encourage them. And because the Bible is the word of God, so also he writes to encourage you. How does he start? Very first word, beloved, beloved. It's, it's Peter's word for when he wants to say something incredibly important from a place of utter love and care. And that's where we're at today. So you're having a rough time of things. We love you. God loves you. And my prayer is that um, as we work our way through this, that God will strengthen you according to the word of his power. And that as we minister to one another after this, that actually he's going to encounter you and that you leave this place changed with a fresh perspective that he is with you. Now, who here likes ambitious goals? Yeah, a few smiles going around. Well, here we go. Because God is with you in your suffering, Peter says seven attitudes that you can adopt. And I'm going to try and work my way through all seven of them in time for us to finish. So here we go. Seatbelt strapped in. Number one, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Sometimes when we're going through the, the tough things of life, we can easily be thinking, have I done something wrong? Does, does God still love me? Where, where is he in this whole process? And actually what Peter wants to do is to reframe our thinking. For us to know that hardship is not a strange thing to be happening to a Christian. And here's his logic. Jesus suffered on the way to glory. We follow him in all things. Therefore, we should not be surprised when on the way to glory, we also suffer. Whatever that means for you, whatever your circumstances, your situation, whatever you're finding tough. And actually here, Peter gives an indication of one of the reasons as to why God allows these things to come to us. He says, to test you. Literally translated, to prove you. And what he's doing there is he's picking up on a concept that he first introduced way back uh, in chapter 1, which for us is like months ago, isn't it? And, uh, and verse 6 and 7, and it says this. In this, that's the, the salvation that his readers have, 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter's saying that in facing these hardships and and in holding on to Jesus, our faith is attested. Our faith is refined. It's purified. He's he's not saying that you have to enjoy the process. This isn't some kind of warped masochism. But he's saying that every moment amidst the difficulties where you say, and still I will trust you, It's a loud, emphatic demonstration of your identity as his child and of his power to keep you going. There is purpose in it. And because there is purpose in it, then you can choose to rejoice. It's verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, maybe right now, rejoicing in the midst of your circumstances is the last thing that you feel like doing. And when you don't feel like it, where do you go? Maybe it's the chocolate cupboard. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's the BBC Sport website. I've been guilty of all of those three things. (laughs) But where should I go when I don't feel like rejoicing? I should go back to the words of God. And we see in the passage here three key concepts in action. They are reason, remind, and rejoice. That is that there are reasons for us to be encouraged in the passage. There are then reminders of those reasons. And then a response that is encouraged for us to live with them in mind and so choose joy. Now let me take a try example. My football team, Stoke City this season have been relegated. It is a very sad time. I'm finding things very tough. My wife is invariably finding things even tougher because she has a grumpy husband. But there you go. (laughs) Now, if I can either stay in my mopiness or I can choose to rejoice in the midst of my circumstances. And if I am to reason, remind, and then respond, I need to find some reasons why that can be a good thing. They might win more games next season. They get to play at venues like Forest and Derby, so I might be able to go and see them. And they might actually start scoring some goals, which would be wonderful. I then need to remind myself of those reasons as I face the invariable stick from most of you that my football team has been relegated. (laughs) Yeah, but it might actually be more fun next year. I might actually go and get to see them. And then I need to live in that response, and I'm actually looking forward to next season because of those reasons. And I'm sure every fan is, because at this point, every fan thinks their team's going to get promoted, don't they? But there you go. (laughs) How much more with something that actually matters? You know, over the last few weeks, it's been an utter joy to see in various worship times and, and worship night that we've had, people that I know are just going through the mire, praying out their trust in Jesus declaring that he is sufficient for them, declaring that there is peace to be found in his presence, 
They are articulating reasons. And then as they pray out, they are reminding themselves of those reasons in order that they might live in the response of following him and knowing that he is sufficient. So what are the reasons that we can find joy amidst our trials? What do we need to reason, remind, and respond to? Well, we've already seen our passages as told us that amidst them, our, our faith is refined and purified. That's verse 12, but, but our passage moves on. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Now just think about that for a moment. You share Christ's sufferings. None of us choose suffering. None of us choose difficulty or trial. But in the midst of it, Peter tells us that we learn something more of what Jesus went through for us. When he experienced the ultimate suffering on our behalf. When he took the wrath of God, the anger of God, the righteous, correct anger of God against all that is wrong in the world that we should have faced because of all the mistakes we've made. He took that upon himself. And as we go through our trials, we get to experience just a small part of what he experienced for us. We get to follow him. It's not nice. There's no minimizing of the pain here. But we just get a glimpse into the most beautiful act of service in the whole of history. Passage moves on. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's saying, if you rejoice now, then on that great day when his glory is revealed, when he returns to gather us with him, to live with him forever, then you will rejoice and be glad. It's a step up. The, the NIV says, if you choose joy now, then on that great day you will be overjoyed. I.e. choosing joy now will increase your joy on that great day as you look back on your decision to say yes to Jesus amidst the pain, amidst the difficulty, you will know it is all worthwhile for the increasing Christ-like character that has been formed in you. The, the 19th century hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, who was blind her whole life, she put it like this, purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our worship, when Jesus we see. Reason, remind, respond. Verse 14 actually gives us an, another reason to be encouraged, but that, that's our next point. So we get to welcome the Spirit of God. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now I want to take you back to a story in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. It's in Daniel chapter 3, and it involves three characters called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or as my minister growing up used to call them, shake the bed, make the bed, and into bed you go. Now, if you're struggling to remember the names, there you go. That one's for free. And what is happening is that they are uh, the people of God. Um, they, they believe and trust in him. But they've been carried off in captivity in a nation that doesn't believe in the one true God. It's got all these, these false gods that, that they worship, chief of whom is the, the, the king himself. 
And they, the, these three God-fearing people are being asked to worship and praise and pray to the king. And they refuse. And he gets really angry. So angry, in fact, that he decides to kill them for their faith. And he gets this fiery furnace going. He says, turn it up seven times more than normal. In fact, the fire of this furnace is so wild that the, the army who are helping to put these three men into it are consumed themselves. That's what the text records. And so right in the midst of these three people in this fiery furnace, because they have trusted in Jesus, the text says this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to him, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Who's that fourth man? There's three of them and someone else. It's Jesus. It's a pre-coming-to-earth appearance of Jesus. Praise God for the fourth man. Where's Jesus amidst your suffering? He's right there with you. By his spirit. Peter tells us that the spirit of glory rests upon you. God himself with you to bless you, to comfort you, to help you to trust him more. And an encounter with him changes you. You know, this week I was uh, heading home on, on the bus and uh, we've been enjoying the glorious sunshine, haven't we? And a couple of times just reading on the bus in a book or on my phone, the sun just blazed in so powerfully that I had to stop it, stop reading. I just couldn't see. It was so, so bright. That's what the Spirit does. As we encounter him, he shines his radiance, his brilliance upon us and we have to stop how we are. We are changed. We stop what we're doing. We change our perspective. As he shines his light, the light of his truth, the light that says he is with you and there is purpose in all you're going through, then we are changed. Psalm 23 puts it like this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Maybe it feels like your life is in that furnace right now. Intense, all-consuming, consigned to a certain outcome. No way out. Well, your great rescuer is right there with you. And because of his presence, the furnace does not consume you. But you can walk in the midst of the fire. Okay. Team talk going all right? Yeah? Okay, let's move on. Point number four. Check your behavior. Well, here we go. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Got any meddlers in the room? I had to look that one up. Someone that constantly interferes with another's business inappropriately. Now, what Peter's saying here is, look, the Christian life is hard enough don't add suffering for being an idiot onto that. Because for the vast majority of us, 
your suffering is not an indication that you've done something wrong. It's not. But Peter recognizes that there are situations, and we all do it, where we mess up or we do something stupid or we omit to do something that we should do, and we get into trouble for it. We suffer the consequences. So maybe if you don't take responsibility for your family, it comes back to bite you. If you misuse drink or drugs, it comes back to bite you. You don't watch your diet or don't do any exercise, it can come back to bite you, can't it? And Peter's saying, come on guys, don't add this to suffering and living life as a Christian. It's hard enough. You know, when I was at school, when I was a teenager, I made an absolute mess of ending a relationship. And at school, I think you can pretty much do anything, believe what you want, be who you want. But if you make a mess of ending a relationship, that's a big no-no. You're for it. And for all the stick that I rightly got for that, was God refining and working on my faith? Well, I'm sure he was. But it happened because I was an idiot. It happened because I did something stupid. And, and Peter's encouragement here is that we check our hearts and we check our lives to make sure that actually our, our suffering is not something that we're continually causing ourselves. Maybe behavior that the Bible disagrees with. Maybe unrepentant sin. Maybe poor lifestyle choices. He's saying we must ask ourselves that question. But if, on doing that, humbly and honestly before God, then your conclusion is that there is nothing significant that needs to change, or that there is and you repent of it, you go back to God and you ask for help, then Peter's charge to you is that you do not need to be ashamed of your suffering. That's verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You don't need to be ashamed. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You don't need to be ashamed. It can be so tempting, can't it, to, to suffer alone. Whether it's an issue with a person, maybe it's you you're just feeling a bit beaten up by life, feeling like the enemy's having a go at you. Maybe life just feels a struggle. It's so tempting to face it alone because you can feel ashamed of telling people about it. You can feel embarrassed. You can feel like a drain. You think, well, people just wouldn't want to know. I think God wants to break us out of that this morning. You do not need to face it alone. You don't need to be ashamed. Do you know what? Even if you're living in regret, even if, if you're, there's something that you've done that you're not proud of and, and you're suffering the consequences of it, there is freedom from shame in Jesus. When you come to him, your slate is wiped entirely clean. There is not just a little mark that is still left. It is wiped entirely clean. You can approach your father in heaven with confidence because he has forgiven you of all you've done wrong. Shame is not part of the Christian walk. 
Did you know that shame is fa- um, that honor is found more times in the Bible than shame? Provided you're willing to sacrifice the English spelling of it, I found out. <laughs> what does that tell you? It tells you that honor eats shame for breakfast in the Bible story. So are you loving Jesus amidst your trials? I honor you. Are you choosing Christ whilst enduring hardship? I honor you. Maybe you feel like you've not got the strength to carry on, but you're clinging to your savior desperately. I honor you. Well done. Well done. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. Let's, break, let's allow God by his spirit to break ourselves out of living in this suffering alone, too ashamed to reveal. There's no shame in the Christian walk. Why? Why is it okay not to be okay? Well, verse 17 and 18 tell us that we don't need to be ashamed because as a Christian, you are not condemned. Now, I'm going to read these verses, and you might have noticed when I read the passage at the top of this, that these ones sound a bit strange. I'm going to explain them, but here we go. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's meaning the church, the people of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's strange, isn't it? You think, what, what's going on there? Well, when the word judgment is used there, it's time for judgment to begin with the people of God. It's not meaning condemnation. It's not in the sense of, you are under judgment. The, the original Greek word there is more talking about an awaited outcome that could have either good or bad consequences. So it very much has in mind the possibility of approval or maybe even loving discipline as well as the possibility of condemnation. Now there's some debate here about the Old Testament background, about the the language that's used. But in essence, what Peter is saying is this, that God has begun his end time process of judging the earth before Jesus returns. And that as that judgment comes, it comes firstly on the Christian. Peter says, it begins with us. But we are found to be righteous in Christ. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, you are right before God. You are free from condemnation. He has taken your every sin, your every mistake. He has wiped your slate clean, and your record before God now is perfect. So the judgment that comes, therefore, is not a condemning judgment, but it's a refining, purifying, and ultimately sanctifying process that leaves us more like Jesus and not condemned as per those who do not obey the gospel of God. I plead with you to make sure you are in the former camp and not the latter. I plead with you to put your trust in Jesus, to receive that freedom from condemnation, 
freedom from shame, to have your every sin forgiven. But if you are in that camp then, if you call yourself a Christian, then in your suffering as a Christian, Peter does not want you to think that you are being condemned or forgotten or punished, but rather to know that there is a plan at work and which though it's difficult to endure, and that's what verse 18 is talking about, if the righteous is scarcely saved, literally, if the righteous are saved with difficulty, it's, it's literally talking about the difficulty of enduring suffering. If you're going through that, then your suffering ultimately proves and vindicates you and enables you, as verse 19 puts it, to entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Entrust yourself to God. Now that sounds difficult because that makes it sound like suffering is all a part of God's plan, even given the fall, even given poor decisions, even given the unanswered questions. But that's actually what verse 19 says. That, less, that those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. What's it saying? It's saying that there is purpose in your suffering. It's saying you've not been overlooked. You're not being punished by God. God has not stopped loving you. Because there would only be one thing worse than the statement that suffering happens, as the verse puts it, according to God's will. And that would be if our suffering happened outside of his will, outside of his sovereignty, if it caught him off guard. But in knowing the purifying purpose to all that you are enduring, in knowing that it demonstrates that you belong to Jesus, then you can be sure completely that God has your back that you will learn more of him and become like him. And that as the faithful creator that he is, he will give you everything you need to get you through. Charles Spurgeon, who lived in the 19th century, is a, a famous preacher, put it like this. Blessed is the hurricane that throws me against the rock of ages. So don't be surprised. Choose to rejoice. Welcome the spirit. Check your behavior. Don't be ashamed. Don't be condemned. And entrust yourself to God. Let's have the band up. <coughs> Maybe all of that sounds impossible to you. And you think, well, how can I do that? Well, Peter would encourage you that there is one who has gone ahead of you in these things. One whose victory enables you to live beyond your own ability. One who went through all temptation, all testing, all trial on your behalf. One who chose to rejoice in the Holy Spirit, knowing the joy of winning you. One who had his behavior checked by the highest of standards and yet was found to be without sin. One who rids you from shame, rids you from condemnation, and empowers you to entrust yourself to God. His name is Jesus.
He suffered so that your suffering would one day end. He's with you in the midst of it. And he promises that as you come to him, he will give you the strength to carry on. Let's stand together and let's sing.